What the modern industrial strategy will be about will be saying what is the shape of the economy that we want for the future. Let's look at the strengths of the whole of the United Kingdom to make sure that this is an economy that works for everyone. This is part of my overall plan. The phrase industrial strategy has made a comeback. For years it was a political taboo. The idea of the government intervening in our economy to improve it was ridiculed. Ronald Reagan even said the nine most dangerous words in politics are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Some people still don't understand why we're talking about it now. Why do you need a strategy for industry? Why not just let industry get on with doing what it does best? A successful industrial strategy requires great confidence that the government will make better decisions than businesses and individuals on the market. But time and time again, we have seen that this is not the case. Well, the government disagrees. They think there are some long-term challenges for the economy in this country and they need to get involved to do something about them. But what are those challenges? And what exactly are the government planning to do to sort them out? What should the UK's industrial strategy look like? Those questions and more on the Weekly Economics Podcast today. My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So we're welcoming back NEF's senior economist, Sarah Mahmood, to talk to us about industrial strategy. How have you been, Sarah, since your last time with me on the podcast? Very good, thank you, and very happy to be back. Oh, awesome. It's lovely to have you. <laughs> and we're also joined by NEF's director of news and media, Will Brett, the great usurper. Will, you took the presenting reins the other week while I was away. Haven't listened to it. Wouldn't give it the time. How hmm. did you find it? I honestly don't know how you do it, Aisha. <laughs> um, thank you for taking over, and I'm so glad you're back. Great, good to be back, unchallenged. All right, so first, our headline segment. We're going to be taking a look back at the biggest stories of the last seven days in a segment I like to call Yesterday. Sarah, what have you noticed in the news recently? So um, I noticed this article in the FT that is about a government survey of apprentices that shows that nearly one in five of them are paid less than the legal minimum wage. And that increased between 2014 and 2016, so the situation's getting worse. A separate survey um, showed that half of graduates have done an unpaid internship. I'm sure that feels pretty familiar mm. to a lot of people mm -hmm. listening. And hairdressing is the worst offender, so nearly half of apprentices um, of hairdressing apprentices were paid below the legal minimum wage. So pr pretty serious stuff for young people. Mm. So, Will, what do you think our listeners should know? Well, I want to talk about the chlorinated chicken fiasco, which you may or may not have mm, seen have not th th this week, which was our Trade Secretary, Liam Fox, over in the US, um, talking about striking a deal, a trade deal with the US. Um, and what's fascinating about this is that, uh, first of all, he thought that it was just a mere detail whether or not UK consumers would uh, be subjected to chlorinated chicken. That's chicken dipped in chlorine before it's sold. Um, for him, that's a mere detail in a wider UK trade deal. But then what happened was really interesting because the, uh, the Environment Secretary, Michael Gove, uh, said that under no circumstances would, would that happen in the UK. So what you've got there is uh, the government essentially doing its trade negotiations in public 
in the you know governments which which know about trade and which uh, do trade deals the whole time, they sort out what their trade position is long beforehand. And what we had this week was the government essentially working out its position in public on the airwaves, creating an almighty media storm, and it was quite something to witness. Wow, a couple of holes in the ship already. Mm-hmm. So thanks, Sarah and Will. More yesterday, next week. Industrial strategy. Let's look at the strengths of the whole of the United Kingdom. Industrial strategy. This is part of my overall plan. Now for our big question. What should the UK's industrial strategy look like? So, back in January, Theresa May laid out a 10-point plan for an industrial strategy for the UK. She said the government was stepping up to a new active role. From investing in science and research, to training workers, to upgrading infrastructure, the Prime Minister said she wanted to build on the strengths of our economy and tackle underlying weaknesses. Some of those weaknesses include unequal levels of growth in different parts of the country and low productivity in the economy overall. But critics of the government's approach say their solutions are not going to deal with these problems. So what would an industrial strategy that tackled the weaknesses in our economy actually look like? And is there still time for the government to make it a reality? So, first of all, Sarah, industrial strategy is a piece of jargon that the government likes to throw around. Can you tell us what it actually means? So industrial strategy is actually really hard to define because it can mean many different things to many different people. Um, Kind of loosely speaking, it's when the government intervenes in the economy to achieve some kind of specific aim. So that could be um, saving or boosting jobs in a particular sector or making the UK really competitive in something like digital economy sectors, or it could be wider social stuff like addressing climate change or, um, you know, as we've heard from the Prime Minister, rebalancing inequalities. Some of the controversy comes around different types of different sort of categories of industrial strategy. So you can get vertical strategies that are really focused on a particular sector. Um, And this really came to the fore last year when the UK UK steel industry was looking a a little bit ropey and when Tata Steel was about to pull out of the UK and there was talk of the government actually buying a 25% equity stake in the company to save jobs in places like Port Talbot. So that's, that's a type of industrial strategy that often gets a bad rep where you're kind of focusing on a particular sector. The other types can be more horizontal though, so... That's kind of more in line with what the government's proposing. So you focus on things that benefit all different types of sectors like infrastructure or skills. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, the, the phrase industrial strategy we hear a lot of now, and it's the name of a, it's part of the name of a department, a government department, and we hear it the whole time. And yet it wasn't so long ago that you would never hear the words industrial strategy. And they've come back, and it's partly because of the politics of the moment that, we, that we're seeing a greater demand for government intervention in, in the economy. Um, but it's it's amazing to see. If you, if you uh, put industrial strategy into the Google... Uh, machine which tells you how often the phrase is appears in books you'll see it peaks hugely in the 1970s and then just disappears and hardly anyone's using it right up until uh, the last few years so now it's it's on everyone's lips okay so what exactly has the government been saying about industrial strategy over the past few years and have they announced any specific policies they have released a green paper um, which outlines those 10 pillars um, of what an industrial strategy should be. And this was basically going out there and asking people, 
what they think they should do around um, things like, so they mentioned science and innovation, skills, infrastructure, business formation, government procurement of services and goods, trade, which will be really important in a Brexit context, um, and then kind of clean energy and greening. They've also got aspirations around regional growth um, and then focusing on specific industries that tend to be quite high tech. Um, So that's things like life sciences um, and kind of digital stuff like AI and then also the creative industries. Um, A lot of the stuff that was in the green paper is actually kind of repackaging Mm. of old policies. There is a fair amount of new stuff so that they've, they've announced like a fund for research and development that they're hoping to get um, kind of the public and stakeholders to guide them on where to invest it. But yeah, it's it, it's still very early days and they've, they're probably going to have a challenge to incorporate all the responses to that consultation. I think there's like 20,000 um, and it just shows you like how vague this term can be. But yeah, I think that the focus overall is is on raising UK productivity um, and competition on the global stage. So, Will, you mentioned the industrial strategy, the phrase has, has re-emerged. Um, did previous governments also have industrial strategies? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. They, they, you know, back in the 1960s, 1970s, government involvement in the economy was just standard. That's how things worked, not just in the UK, but in a lot of the developed world. And uh, that that changed over the course of the 1980s. And then there was a, a, a long period where the idea of industrial strategy, the idea of government intervening in the economy uh, was almost taboo, um, despite the fact that, of course, governments are always intervening in the economy one way or another, and, uh, whether they're creating markets or supporting uh, the provision of public goods and that kind of thing. So it was taboo for a long time. And what we saw uh, towards the end of the last Labour government was an emerging kind of commitment to, to uh, investing in research and development. We had this thing called the Catapult Program, which sounds kind of fun and exciting and in many ways possibly is mm, uh, but I is in it. fact <laughs> is in fact uh, a series of kind of research and development uh, agencies that are trying to um, invest in high-tech um, areas of the economy supported by the government so things like medicine and satellites and cell and gene therapy really kind of you know white suit white coat kind of stuff mm. Um, and that uh, was expanded quite a lot in the uh, in the coalition years, 2010 to 2015. Um, that's sort of where industrial strategy, where the energy has been in the past. And then we had this explosion of excitement about the idea of industrial strategy, particularly after Brexit and the new government looking for a way to try and respond to uh, this moment, this political moment in which it was revealed how far behind some people felt they'd been left by the modern economy and and the new government's idea was well industrial strategy is the way and as Sarah says there was this uh, green paper which a lot of people found quite disappointing because it did as Sarah says kind of repackage stuff that has been committed to by previous governments whether it's investing in research and development or uh, skills programs and so on um, so the, really you know the moment is now and you know we need to see you know you know, we need to see some real ambition here. I mean, there, there is a huge need and requirement for industrial strategy, and now is the moment to do it properly. It, it, again, it speaks to that whole thing around Brexit of areas being left behind. There's some areas, many areas in the country that are really struggling still since the financial crisis. And 
I think it's also a case of like, we just don't know what else is left to do. And we've got to kind of try something we haven't been doing for the past 30, 40 years. Some economists would say that we don't need an industrial strategy at all, um, that the government shouldn't intervene and, and pick winners in industry. We should just let business get on with it. So what would you both say to that? Well, I think it's based on the idea of like a very simple idea of how the economy works, which is that um, you have businesses that pursue profit in a competitive market. And that means if there's demand for something, then someone will eventually fill it at some point. And that kind of applies to making stuff better as well. If there's a way to capture more profit by innovating and producing a better good or service, then they'll do it. Um, there's kind of two problems with that. One of them is that there, there's, there's an acknowledged thing in, in mainstream economics, which is the concept of a market failure. So that competitive markets um, either don't exist for some goods or services, um, or they're just unable to provide the kind of basics for what society needs to even have just sustainable, bog-standard economic growth. So there's, there's loads of examples of market failures. So for ex a classic example is um, pollution. So um, if someone makes more cars um, better and more cheaply, then the people producing the car can benefit and the people buying the car can benefit if it's at a lower price. But then we all pay collectively for the increased amount of air pollution. So that's mm -hmm. a market failure known as an externality. When it comes to things like innovation and research and development, so knowledge is best when it's free. Knowledge is best when everyone knows it and can apply, you know, like if you've got a great new way to make stuff in a factory, it's better if everyone can apply that and we all get more productive. But that means that business doesn't have an incentive to invest in that knowledge production because they can't capture the profit. So, so that shows, you know, the, the government has to intervene even to just create the environment where business can get on with things. Mm. Um, I, think, I think a second problem is that it kind of relies on very short-term ideas of where we're going. So it relies on um, demand that's kind of already there or is reasonably easy to envisage. When really, actually, a lot of the like, major innovations we see have come out of really blue sky, mission-orientated projects. So um, Mariana Mazzucato is, is an economist that talks a lot about this idea of kind of setting yourself a really high goal and then just going for it. And the example that's always used is like the mission to get to the moon, for example. But more recent stuff is 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 particle accelerators at CERN. You know that that kind of kicked off a little thing called the World Wide Web, mm -hmm. and we're all reaping the benefits of that now. So I I think the case for government intervention is really really clear if you just kind of get your head out of the economics textbooks and actually look at reality. And another way of thinking about it also, isn't it, is that uh, the whole period where picking winners was thought to be. Uh, taboo, um, that whole period in the 1980s, 1990s, um, that was a period in which the fi financial sector in the UK was massively deregulated, grew hugely and, and came to dominate the economy. Uh, now, one way you could see that is the government stepping away from regulating mar that market and allowing it to 
grow in the way that it was sort of naturally going to grow. Another way of seeing it is that is that that is also a government intervention, right? I mean, if you pull away from a market, which you know all markets have to be underwritten by some sort of state power of some kind, uh, if you pull away from that market, you are also do- doing something. You may not be choosing a winner in the way that uh, um, the phrase "picking winners" suggests, but you are making a decision and it's a sort of abnegation of responsibility for government to think that there's a way of just sort of stepping away from the economy and not having not having anything to do with it. Mm, definitely. Okay, so as we talked about, the, the government has identified a couple of specific problems with our economy that they want our industrial strategy to deal with. So one of them is regional inequality and the other one is low productivity. So let's start with regional inequality. What would we need to see in the government's industrial strategy to start to help deal with that. Um, and whatever happened to the Northern Powerhouse, Will? Well, it's such a good question. And look, the, the regional inequality is is perhaps the the thing which industrial strategy could, if it was done bet, done well, could genuinely help to address. Mm. The problem with this is that the sort of approach you get with industrial strategy uh, potentially doesn't do anything for people who don't live in London and the Southeast or perhaps city centres or high-value, high-productivity areas. Because basically, the approach that we've heard uh, on this show already to do with research and development, high-tech sectors like medicine and satellites and cell and gene therapy, all these you know, really high-tech um, industries, um, if the focus is on them, then you're going to improve their productivity, you're going to improve uh, the job prospects in those industries. And there may be a few jobs created as a result of spending lots of money in those areas and and improving those sectors. But meanwhile, there's a vast number of people working in huge parts of the economy, like retail or in the public sector. Now, people who work in supermarkets, there's 3 million people or something in the retail sector in the country. If your industrial strategy has nothing to do with the fact that they're be- they're being low paid um, and that they live all over the country. That you know the, the people who work in retail live everywhere, um, not just in the places where government's going to pour lots of investment in through industrial strategy. If your industrial strategy doesn't have anything to offer those vast numbers of people who work in what some people are calling the foundational economy, then there's a real question about whether it will address regional inequality. You know, there's a scenario where you go for this high-tech-led approach. You allow Manchester, for instance, to invest in a sort of city-centred-led, high-tech-led growth pattern. And all you're really doing in doing that is attracting high-skilled people from elsewhere in the country to live in the centre of Manchester, and you're not necessarily offering for people offering much for people who live in Manchester or in the in the neighbouring um, areas uh, with your industrial strategy. So I think you know, there's there's such an opportunity here to do industrial strategy properly, but it's maybe not as glamorous as mm-hmm. uh, people would like it to be. It's maybe not all about the high tech sectors. It may also be about the hard work of increasing skills and investment in some pretty unglamorous industries like retail. Well, we so at the moment we are doing a research project um, for on behalf of the TUC that's looking at um, East Anglia in particular. The TUC is in the process of commissioning, um, kind of looking at three different regions and asking those questions. You know, what will work here? And I think one of the things that we're really seeing is that even within an area, you get real diversity. So, for example, in Norfolk and Suffolk, you've got 
Norwich with the University of East Anglia and, you know, some like kind of clusters of high tech activity. Then you've got a huge coastline with some quite isolated coastal communities, but who have this kind of wealth of kind of local assets. So they've got, for example, a really great oral folk history tradition Mm. um, from just the kind of generations of fishing that's happened around there. Um, And you see kind of local initiatives that are really trying to take advantage of that and work in um, things that are already in the area to smooth over the kind of how seasonal tourism can be in that region. And that's exactly, I think, what, you know, you were talking about, Will, is, is kind of thinking about what have we got within a community already and how can industrial strategies support those types of activities yeah and it's going to be different for different places isn't it exactly. and that's why I mean, the, the there's there is an excitement around the idea of mission-led industrial strategy like you were saying mm. set a big target like greening the economy or flying to the moon or whatever it is um, and there's probably a role for that in in an industrial strategy but you can't forget the more the difficult to dis- describe and nuanced and complicated mm-hmm. local picture and you have to empower places to be able to develop their own strategies which work for the places where people live. Okay, so that's regional inequality. What about low productivity? So what do we mean by productivity and can industrial strategy help to boost it, Sarah? Um, so productivity is, is commonly measured um, or commonly meant to mean how much stuff is made per hour work mm-hmm. or per worker. There's kind of two ways of expressing it, but it generally means like how much work does someone have to put in compared to how much stuff we make or services we provide. And uh, the UK has a productivity problem. Um, we rank, I think, almost the lowest, if, if, if I remember wow. rightly, in terms of EU countries and, and in terms of developed countries overall. So, so this is why it's such a focus of the industrial strategy. Low productivity tends to be in things like the services industry, so things like restaurants, hotels, supermarkets. The reason it's so serious is because low. Pro- so, if if a worker isn't making as much stuff, it's much harder for their wages to be raised. There's there's a kind of common idea in economics that productivity drives wage increases. Again, which is why it's such a focus of the industrial strategy. So in a recent speech um, at the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, their chief economist, pinned this um, lack of productivity, not necessarily on us not being like really innovative and finding new ways to do stuff, but um, the idea that that, that that wasn't diffused through to lots of different types of companies. Mm. Um, so he was saying that an industrial strategy could help by funding programs to kind of link universities with businesses, for example, to kind of get research ideas out there in the field, as it were. But then I think there's a question, and it kind of comes back to what we were just saying, about um, what happens to people who are working in sectors that aren't really high tech. Say things like the care industry. You, th- th- There could be a desire to focus on the really, really high tech cutting edge stuff, but there are things we could be doing to make the care industry more, more productive, so making it easier for people to do more stuff. There's also potentially a tension between increasing productivity and the impact it has on people mm. because if you if one worker can do more stuff and then that particular worker's wage might go up but then the firm might employ less people 
So we have to think about it really holistically. We have to think about things like not just training up kids to code better and kind of go into like AI companies. We need to think about um, lifelong learning and how people can kind of move, either improve how productive they are in their current job or kind of transition into those other industries. So industrial strategy has to focus on skills as well as R&D. Okay, great. Thanks, guys, for helping us unpack the jargon. That was really (laughs) useful. So for our final segment, we're going to play a little game called Pick a Winner, the title inspired by our friends at the Institute of Economic Affairs and the Adam Smith Institute. You each have to imagine that you're in charge of industrial strategy in the UK, but you can only pick one thing for the government to invest or intervene in to deal with the country's economic problems. So one thing only, what would it be? Sarah, you're up first. I'm really torn, so I'm going to kind of back out a little bit. And I'm going to say land. So the land market, Mm. Um, mainly because at the moment it's it's just crazy broken. Too much um, of economic development ends up in the pockets of landowners because at the moment they can just basically flog land to the highest bidder and it's all all a bit of a mess. I think the reason it's so important is it impacts on two things that I would probably say the government has to, has to sort out, which is housing and transport. I think in particular, and sort of speaking about the the regional inequality stuff we were talking about, um, so in the last week we've seen Chris Grayling scrap rail electrification in the Wales and, and the Midlands, and there's a question mark hanging over whether the railway line between uh, Leeds and Manchester, so the Trans-Pennine uh, line, is going to be improved. And at the same time, he's uh, signalled support for Crossrail too. So there's this mm. kind of like either or tension whereas I would argue that if you sorted out land markets you'd be able to do both because you'd be able to do something called land value capture mm. which I'm wanna, sure you'll yeah. hear about uh, <laughs> so if you want to know more about that everyone <laughs> tune in next week a special <laughs> episode on land Will what have you got you said two things right uh, did I say two things? I said one thing only. Okay, I well, specifically okay, said fine, fine. My, my real, My real answer is very boring, sounds very boring, but it's absolutely crucial. It's skills and investment in the retail sector, which employs three million people all over the country. But if I had like a sort of fantasy mm-hmm. uh, yeah. choice That's as well, it would be the Hyperloop, which is an oh, idea yeah. by uh, invented by Elon Musk, which would be a transport system that kind of shoots you through tubes all over the country. And I kind of think, like, why does uh, why does Elon Musk get to do this? Why can't we do this, uh, you know, as a as a nation, as a as yeah. the government? You know, let's do the Hyperloop. So do land value capture for the Hyperloop. There we go. Basically, done there exactly. we go. I don't see why not. Okay. So, thanks guys for joining me today. I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have too. So, if you have enjoyed this episode, listeners, please think about leaving us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast app. It only takes a minute and it really helps bump us up the charts, which helps other people discover the show. Big thanks to Olivia from Belgium, Alice and Charles from the UK, and somebody from Germany calling themselves Econ Pro Pro for doing just that in the past few weeks. You're all great. So make sure you subscribe to the Weekly Economics Podcast in the app of your choice to get new episodes every week. 
If you've got a comment about today's episode or a question you'd like us to answer, you can tweet us. We're at Weekly Econ Pod. Or, and this is a new thing, you can record yourself in the Voice Memos app on your phone and email it to our producer, James, <laughs> on weeklyeconpod at jshield.co.uk. Who knows? You might even make it onto next week's show. That's exciting. Someone please do that. Someone please do that. Okay, the Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week.